Chapter Ten of Industrial Biography, Ironworkers and Toolmakers by Samuel Smiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall. Mechanical Inventions and Inventors. L'invention n'est-elle pas la poésie de la science? Toutes les grandes découvertes portent avec elles la trace inefficable d'un pensée poétique. Il faut être poète pour créer. Aussi, sommes-nous convaincus que si les puissantes machines, véritables sources de la production et de l'industrie de nos jours, doivent recevoir des modifications radicales, ce sera à des hommes d'imagination, et non point à des hommes purement spécieux, que l'on devra cette transformation. I. M. Bataille, traite des machines à vapeur. Tools have played a highly important part in the history of civilization. Without tools and the ability to use them, man were indeed but a poor bare-forked animal, worse clothed than the birds, worse housed than the beaver, worse fed than the jackal. Weak in himself, says Carlyle, and of small stature, he stands on a basis, at most for the flattest sold of some half-square foot, insecurely enough has to straddle out his legs lest the very wind supplant him. Feeblest of bipeds, three quintals are a crushing load for him. The steer of the meadow tosses him aloft like a waste rag. Nevertheless, he can use tools, can devise tools. With these the granite mountain melts into light dust before him. He kneads glowing iron as if it were soft paste. Seas are his smooth highway, winds and fire his unvarying steeds. Nowhere do you find him without tools. Without tools he is nothing. With tools he is all. His very first contrivances to support life were tools of the simplest and rudest construction. And his latest achievements in the substitution of machinery for the relief of the human hand and intellect are founded on the use of tools of a still higher order. Hence it is not without good reason that man has, by some philosophers, been defined as a tool-making animal. Tools, like everything else, had small beginnings. With the primitive stone hammer and chisel very little could be done. The felling of a tree would occupy a workman a month unless helped by the destructive action of fire. Dwellings could not be built, the soil could not be tilled, clothes could not be fashioned and made, and the hewing out of a boat was so tedious a process that wood must have been far gone into decay before it could be launched. It was a great step in advance to discover the art of working in metals, more especially in steel, one of the few metals capable of taking a sharp edge and keeping it. From the date of this discovery, working in wood and stone would be found comparatively easy, and the results must speedily have been felt not only in the improvement of man's daily food, but in his domestic and social condition. Clothing could then be made, the primitive forest could be cleared and tillage carried out. Abundant fuel could be obtained, dwellings erected, ships built, temples reared. Every improvement in tools marking a new step in the development of the human intellect and a further stage in the progress of human civilization. The earliest tools were of the simplest possible character, consisting principally of modifications of the wedge, such as the knife the shears, formed of two knives working on a joint, 
the chisel and the axe. These, with a primitive hammer, formed the principal stock-in-trade of the early mechanics, who were handicraftsmen in the literal sense of the word. But the work which the early craftsmen in wood, stone, brass, and iron contrived to execute sufficed to show how much expertness in the handling of tools will serve to compensate for their mechanical imperfections. Workmen then sought rather to aid muscular strength than to supersede it, and mainly to facilitate the efforts of manual skill. Another tool became added to those mentioned above, which proved an additional source of power to the workman. We mean the saw, which was considered of so much importance that its inventor was honoured with a place among the gods in the mythology of the Greeks. This invention is said to have been suggested by the arrangement of the teeth in the jaw of a serpent, used by Talus, the nephew of Daedalus, in dividing a piece of wood. From the representations of ancient tools found in the paintings at Herculaneum, it appears that the frame saw used by the ancients very nearly resembled that still in use. And we are informed that the tools employed in the carpenter's shops at Nazareth at this day are in most respects the same as those represented in the buried Roman city. Another very ancient tool referred to in the Bible and in Homer was the file, which was used to sharpen weapons and implements. Thus the Hebrews had a file for the mattocks, and for the coulters, and for the forks, and for the axes, and to sharpen the goads. When to these we add the adze, plain irons, the auger, and the chisel, we sum up the tools principally relied on by the early mechanics for working in wood and iron. Such continued to be the chief tools in use down almost to our own day. The smith was at first the principal toolmaker, but special branches of trade were gradually established devoted to toolmaking. So long, however, as the workman relied mainly on his dexterity of hand, the amount of production was comparatively limited, for the number of skilled workmen was but small. The articles turned out by them, being the product of tedious manual labour, were too dear to come into common use, and were made almost exclusively for the richer classes of the community. It was not until machinery had been invented and had become generally adopted that many of the ordinary articles of necessity and of comfort were produced in sufficient abundance and at such prices as enabled them to enter into the consumption of the great body of the people. But every improver of tools had a long and difficult battle to fight for any improvement in their effective power was sure to touch the interests of some established craft. Especially was this the case with machines, which are but tools of a more complete though complicated kind than those above described. Take, for instance, the case of the saw. The tedious drudgery of dividing timber by the old-fashioned handsaw is well known. To avoid it, some ingenious person suggested that a number of saws should be fixed to a frame in a mill, so contrived as to work with a reciprocating motion, upwards and downwards, or backwards and forwards, and that this frame so mounted should be yoked to the mill-wheel, and the saws driven by the power of wind or water. The plan was tried, and as may readily be imagined, the amount of effective work done by this machine-saw was immense compared with the tedious process of sawing by hand. It will be observed, however, that the new method must have seriously interfered with the labour of the hand-sawyers, and it was but natural that they should regard the establishment of the sawmills with suspicion and hostility. Hence, 
a long period elapsed before the hand-sawyers would permit the new machinery to be set up and worked. The first sawmill in England was erected by a Dutchman near London in 1663, but was shortly abandoned in consequence of the determined hostility of the workmen. More than a century passed before a second sawmill was set up, when, in 1767, Mr. John Houghton, a London timber merchant, by the desire and with the approbation of the Society of Arts, erected one at Limehouse to be driven by wind. The work was directed by one James Stansfield, who had gone over to Holland for the purpose of learning the art of constructing and managing the sawing machinery. But the mill was no sooner erected than a mob assembled and raised it to the ground. The principal rioters having been punished, and the loss to the proprietor having been made good by the nation, a new mill was shortly after built, and it was suffered to work without further molestation. Improved methods of manufacture have usually had to encounter the same kind of opposition. Thus, when the Flemish weavers came over to England in the seventeenth century, bringing with them their skill and their industry, they excited great jealousy and hostility among the native workmen. Their competition as workmen was resented as an injury, but their improved machinery was regarded as a far greater source of mischief. In a memorial presented to the King in 1621, we find the London weavers complaining of the foreigners' competition, but especially that they have made so bold of late as to devise engines for working of tape, lace, ribbon, and such like, wherein one man doth more among them than seven Englishmen can do so as their cheap sale of commodity beggareth all our English artificers of the trade, and enricheth them. At a much more recent period, new inventions have had to encounter serious rioting and machine-breaking fury. Kay of the fly-shuttle, Hargreaves of the spinning jenny, and Arkwright of the spinning frame, all had to fly from Lancashire, glad to escape with their lives. Indeed, says Mr. Basley, so jealous were the people, and also the legislature, of everything calculated to supersede men's labour, that when the Sankey Canal, six miles long, near Warrington, was authorised about the middle of last century, it was on the express condition that the boats plying along it should be drawn by men only. Even improved agricultural tools and machines have had the same opposition to encounter and in our own time bands of rural labourers have gone from farm to farm breaking drill-ploughs, winnowing, threshing, and other machines, down even to the common drills, not perceiving that if their policy had proved successful, and tools could have been effectually destroyed, the human race would at once have been reduced to their teeth and nails, and civilization summarily abolished. It is no doubt natural that the ordinary class of workmen should regard with prejudice, if not with hostility, the introduction of machines calculated to place them at a disadvantage and to interfere with their usual employments. For to poor, and not very far-seeing men, the loss of daily bread is an appalling prospect. But invention does not stand still on that account. Human brains will work. Old tools are improved, and new ones invented, superseding existing methods of production, that the weak and unskilled may occasionally be pushed aside or even trodden underfoot. The consolation which remains is that, while the few suffer, society as a whole is vastly benefited by the improved methods of production, which are suggested, invented, and perfected by the experience of successive generations. 
The living race is the inheritor of the industry and skill of all past times, and the civilization we enjoy is but the sum of the useful effects of labor during the past centuries. Nihil per saltum. By slow and often painful steps, nature's secrets have been mastered. Not an effort has been made but has had its influence, for no human labor is altogether lost, some remnant of useful effect surviving for the benefit of the race, if not of the individual. Even attempts apparently useless have not really been so, but have served in some way to advance man to a higher knowledge, skill, or discipline. The loss of a position gained, says Professor Thompson, is an event unknown in the history of man's struggle with the forces of inanimate nature. A single step won gives a firmer foothold for further effort. The man may die, but the race survives and continues the work, to use the poet's simile, mounting on stepping-stones of dead selves to higher selves. Filariti Charles, indeed, holds that it is the human race that is your true inventor. As if to unite all generations, he says, and to show that man can only act efficiently by association with others, it has been ordained that each inventor shall only interpret the first word of the problem he sets himself to solve, and that every great idea shall be the resume of the past at the same time as it is the germ of the future. And rarely does it happen that any discovery or invention of importance is made by one man alone. The threads of inquiry are taken up and traced, one labourer succeeding another, each tracing it a little further, often without apparent result. This goes on sometimes for centuries, until at length some man, perhaps greater than his fellows, seeking to fulfil the needs of his time, gathers the various threads together, treasures up the gain of past successes and failures, and uses them as the means for some solid achievement. Thus Newton discovered the laws of gravitation, and thus James Watt invented the steam engine. So also of the locomotive, of which Robert Stevenson said, it has not been the invention of any one man, but of a race of mechanical engineers. Or, as Joseph Brahmer observed, in the preamble to his second lock patent, among the number of patents granted there are comparatively few which can be called original, so that it is difficult to say where the boundary of one ends, and where that of another begins. The arts are indeed reared but slowly, and it was a wise observation of Lord Bacon that we are too apt to pass those ladders by which they have been reached, and reflect the whole merit on the last new performer. Thus what is hailed as an original invention is often found to be but the result of a long succession of trials and experiments, gradually following each other, which ought rather to be considered as a continuous series of achievements of the human mind than as the conquest of any single individual. It has sometimes taken centuries of experience to ascertain the value of a single fact in its various bearings. Like man himself, experience is feeble and apparently purposeless in its infancy, but acquires maturity and strength with age. Experience, however, is not limited to a lifetime, but is the stored-up wealth and power of our race. Even amidst the death of successive generations, it is constantly advancing and accumulating, exhibiting at the same time the weakness and the power, the littleness and the greatness of our common humanity. And 
not only do we who live succeed to the actual results of our predecessors' labour, to their works of learning and of art, their inventions and discoveries, their tools and machines, their roads, bridges, canals and railways, but to the inborn aptitude of blood and brain which they bequeath to us, to that educability, so to speak, which has been won for us by the labour of many generations, and forms our richest natural heritage. The beginning of most inventions is very remote. The first idea, born within some unknown brain, passes thence into others, and at last comes forth complete, after a parturition, it may be, of centuries. One starts the idea, another develops it, and so on progressively, until at last it is elaborated and worked out in practice. But the first, not less than the last, is entitled to his share in the merit of the invention, were it only possible to measure and apportion it duly. Sometimes a great original mind strikes upon some new vein of hidden power, and gives a powerful impulse to the inventive faculties of man, which lasts through generations. More frequently, however, inventions are not entirely new, but modifications of contrivances previously known, though to a few, and not yet brought into practical use. Glancing back over the history of mechanism, we occasionally see an invention seemingly full-born, when suddenly it drops out of sight, and we hear no more of it for centuries. It is taken up de novo by some inventor, stimulated by the needs of his time, and falling again upon the track, he recovers the old footmarks, follows them up, and completes the work. There is also such a thing as inventions being born before their time, the advanced mind of one generation projecting that which cannot be executed for want of the requisite means. But in due process of time, when mechanism has got abreast of the original idea, it is at length carried out. And thus it is that modern inventors are enabled to effect many objects which their predecessors had tried in vain to accomplish. As Louis Napoleon has said, Inventions born before their time must remain useless until the level of common intellects rises to comprehend them. For this reason, misfortune is often the lot of the inventor before his time, though glory and profit may belong to his successors. Hence the gift of inventing not unfrequently involves a yoke of sorrow. Many of the greatest inventors have lived neglected and died unrequited, before their merits could be recognised and estimated. Even if they succeed, they often raise up hosts of enemies in the persons whose methods they propose to supersede. Envy, malice, and detraction meet them in all their forms. They are assailed by combinations of rich and unscrupulous persons to wrest from them the profits of their ingenuity. And last, and worst of all, the successful inventor often finds his claim to originality decried, and himself branded as a copyist and a pirate. Among the inventions born out of time, and before the world could make adequate use of them, we can only find space to allude to a few, though they are so many that one is almost disposed to accept the words of Chaucer as true, that there is nothing new but what has once been old, or, as another writer puts it, there is nothing new but what has before been known and forgotten, or, in the words of Solomon, the thing that hath been is that which shall be, and there is no new thing under the sun. One of the most important of these is the use of steam, 
which was well known to the ancients, but though it was used to grind drugs, to turn a spit, and to excite the wonder and fear of the credulous, a long time elapsed before it became employed as a useful motive power. The inquiries and experiments on the subject extended through many ages. Friar Bacon, who flourished in the thirteenth century, seems fully to have anticipated in the following remarkable passage nearly all that steam could accomplish, as well as the hydraulic engine and the diving bell, though the flying machine yet remains to be invented. I will now, says the friar, mention some of the wonderful works of art and nature in which there is nothing of magic, and which magic could not perform. Instruments may be made by which the largest ships, with only one man guiding them, will be carried with greater velocity than if they were full of sailors. Chariots may be constructed that will move with incredible rapidity, without the help of animals. Instruments of flying may be formed, in which a man, sitting at his ease and meditating on any subject, may beat the air with his artificial wings, after the manner of birds. A small instrument may be made to raise or depress the greatest weights. An instrument may be fabricated by which one man may draw a thousand men to him by force and against their will, as also machines which will enable men to walk at the bottom of seas or rivers without danger. It is possible that Friar Bacon derived his knowledge of the powers which he thus described from the traditions handed down of former inventions which had been neglected and allowed to fall into oblivion. For before the invention of printing, which enabled the results of investigations and experience to be treasured up in books, there was great risk of the inventions of one age being lost to the succeeding generations. Yet Disraeli the Elder is of opinion that the Romans had invented printing without being aware of it, or perhaps the Senate dreaded the inconveniences attending its use and did not care to deprive a large body of scribes of their employment. They even used stereotypes, or removable printing types, to stamp impressions on their pottery, specimens of which still exist. In China the art of printing is of great antiquity. Lithography was well known in Germany, by the very name which it still bears, nearly three hundred years before Sannefelder reinvented it, and specimens of the ancient art are yet to be seen in the Royal Museum at Munich. Steam locomotion by sea and land had long been dreamt of and attempted. Blasco de Garay made his experiment in the harbour of Barcelona as early as 1543. Denis Papin made a similar attempt at Castle in 1707. But it was not until Watt had solved the problem of the steam engine that the idea of the steamboat could be developed in practice, which was done by Miller of Dolswinton in 1788. Sages and poets have frequently foreshadowed inventions of great social moment. Thus Dr. Darwin's anticipation of the locomotive in his Botanic Garden, published in 1791, before any locomotive had been invented, might almost be regarded as prophetic. Soon shall thy arm, unconquered steam, afar drag the slow barge and drive the rapid car. Denis Papin first threw out the idea of atmospheric locomotion, and Gauthier, another Frenchman in 1782, projected a method of conveying parcels and merchandise by subterraneous tubes, after the method recently patented and brought into operation by the London Pneumatic Dispatch Company. The balloon was an ancient Italian invention, revived by Montgolfier long after the original had been forgotten. Even the reaping machine is an old invention revived. Thus Barnaby Googe, 
the translator of a book from the German entitled The Whole Art and Trade of Husbandry, published in 1577 in the reign of Elizabeth, speaks of the reaping machine as a worn-out invention, a thing which was wont to be used in France. The device was a low kind of car, with a couple of wheels and a front armed with sharp sickles, which, forced by the beast through the corn, did cut all down before it. This trick, says Googe, might be used in level and champion countries, but with us it would make but ill-favoured work. The Thames Tunnel was thought an entirely new manifestation of engineering genius, but the tunnel under the Euphrates in ancient Babylon, and that under the wide mouth of the harbour at Marseilles, a much more difficult work, show that the ancients were beforehand with us in the art of tunnelling. Macadamised roads are as old as the Roman Empire, and suspension bridges, though comparatively new in Europe, have been known in China for centuries. There is every reason to believe, indeed it seems clear, that the Romans knew of gunpowder, though they only used it for the purpose of fireworks, while the secret of the destructive Greek fire has been lost altogether. When gunpowder came to be used for purposes of war, invention busied itself upon instruments of destruction. When recently examining the museum of the arsenal at Venice, we were surprised to find numerous weapons of the 15th and 16th centuries, embodying the most recent English improvements in arms, such as revolving pistols, rifled muskets, and breech-loading cannon. The latter, embodying Sir William Armstrong's modern idea, though in a rude form, had been fished up from the bottom of the Adriatic, where the ship armed with them had been sunk hundreds of years ago. Even Perkins' steam-gun was an old invention revived by Leonardo da Vinci, and by him attributed to Archimedes. The Congreve rocket is said to have an eastern origin, Sir William Congreve having observed its destructive effects when employed by the forces under Tipu Saib in the Maratha war, on which he adopted and improved the missile, and brought out the invention as his own. Coal gas was regularly used by the Chinese for lighting purposes long before it was known amongst us. Hydropathy was generally practised by the Romans, who established baths wherever they went. Even chloroform is no new thing. The use of ether as an anaesthetic was known to Albertus Magnus, who flourished in the thirteenth century, and in his works he gives a recipe for its preparation. In 1681, Denis Papin published his Traite des Opérations sans douleur, showing that he had discovered methods of deadening pain. But the use of anaesthetics is much older than Albertus Magnus or Papa, for the ancients had their Nepenthe and Mandragora, the Chinese their Mayo, and the Egyptians their Hashish, both preparations of cannabis indica, the effects of which in a great measure resemble those of chloroform. What is perhaps still more surprising is the circumstance that one of the most elegant of recent inventions, that of sun-painting by the daguerreotype, was in the fifteenth century known to Leonardo da Vinci, whose skill as an architect and engraver, and whose accomplishments as a chemist and natural philosopher, have been almost entirely overshadowed by his genius as a painter. The idea, thus early born, lay in oblivion until 1760, when the daguerreotype was again clearly indicated in a book published in Paris, written by a certain Tiphane de la Roche, under the anagrammatic title of Guifanti. Still later, at the beginning of the present century, we find Thomas Wedgwood, 
Sir Humphrey Davy and James Watt making experiments on the action of light upon nitrate of silver. And only within the last few months a silvered copper plate has been found amongst the old household lumber of Matthew Bolton, Watt's partner, having on it a representation of the old premises at Soho, apparently taken by some such process. In like manner, the invention of the electric telegraph, supposed to be exclusively modern, was clearly indicated by Schwenter in his Delasement Psychomathematique, published in 1636, and he there pointed out how two individuals could communicate with each other by means of the magnetic needle. A century later, in 1746, Le Monnier exhibited a series of experiments in the royal gardens at Paris, showing how electricity could be transmitted through iron wire 950 fathoms in length. And in 1753 we find one Charles Marshall publishing a remarkable description of the electric telegraph in the Scots magazine, under the title of An Expedition's Method of Conveying Intelligence. Again, in 1760, we find George Louis Lesage, Professor of Mathematics at Geneva, promulgating his invention of an electric telegraph, which he eventually completed and set to work in 1774. This instrument was composed of twenty-four metallic wires, separated from each other and enclosed in a non-conducting substance. Each wire ended in a stalk, mounted with a little ball of elderwood suspended by a silk thread. When a stream of electricity, no matter how slight, was sent through the wire, the elder ball at the opposite end was repelled, such movement designating some letter of the alphabet. A few years later we find Arthur Young in his Travels in France, describing a similar machine invented by Monsieur Lemont of Paris, the action of which he also describes. In these and similar cases, though the idea was born and the model of the invention was actually made, it still waited the advent of the scientific mechanical inventor, who should bring it to perfection and embody it in a practical working form. Some of the most valuable inventions have descended to us without the names of their authors having been preserved. We are the inheritors of an immense legacy of the results of labour and ingenuity, but we know not the names of our benefactors. Who invented the watch as a measurer of time? Who invented the fast and loose pulley? Who invented the eccentric? Who, asks the mechanical inquirer, invented the method of cutting screws with stocks and dies? Whoever he may be, he was certainly a great benefactor of his species. Yet, adds the writer, his name is not known, though the invention has been so recent. This is not, however, the case with most modern inventions, the greater number of which are more or less disputed. Who was entitled to the merit of inventing printing has never yet been determined. Weber and Senefelder both laid claim to the invention of lithography, though it was merely an old German art, revived. Even the invention of the penny postage system by Sir Rowland Hill is disputed. Dr. Gray of the British Museum claiming to be its inventor, and a French writer alleging it to be an old French invention. The invention of the steamboat has been claimed on behalf of Blasco de Guerret, a Spaniard, Papin, a Frenchman, Jonathan Hulls, an Englishman, and Patrick Miller of Dalswinton, a Scotchman. The invention of the spinning machine has been variously attributed to Paul, Wyatt, Hargreaves, Higley, and Arkwright. The invention of the balance spring was claimed by Huygens, a Dutchman, Hautefeuille, a Frenchman, and Hooke, an Englishman. 
there is scarcely a point of detail in the locomotive but is the subject of dispute. Thus the invention of the blast pipe is claimed for Trevithick, George Stevenson, Goldsworthy Gurney, and Timothy Hackworth, that of the tubular boiler by Seguin, Stevens, Booth, and W. H. James, that of the link motion by John Gray, Hugh Williams, and Robert Stevenson. Indeed, many inventions appear to be coincident. A number of minds are working at the same time on the same track, with the object of supplying some want generally felt, and guided by the same experience they not unfrequently arrive at like results. It has sometimes happened that the inventors have been separated by great distances, so that piracy on the part of either was impossible. Thus Hadley and Godfrey almost simultaneously invented the quadrant, one in London, the other in Philadelphia, and the process of electrotyping was invented at the same time by Mr. Spencer, a working chemist at Liverpool, and by Professor Jacobi at St. Petersburg. The safety lamp was a coincident invention made about the same time by Sir Humphrey Davy and George Stevenson. And perhaps a still more remarkable instance of a coincident discovery was that of the planet Neptune, by Leverrier at Paris, and by Adams at Cambridge. It is always difficult to apportion the due share of merit which belongs to mechanical inventors, who are accustomed to work upon each other's hints and suggestions, as well as by their own experience. Some idea of this difficulty may be formed from the fact that, in the course of our investigations as to the origin of the planing machine, one of the most useful of modern tools, we have found that it has been claimed on behalf of six inventors, Fox of Derby, Roberts of Manchester, Matthew Murray of Leeds, Spring of Aberdeen, Clement, and George Rennie of London. And there may be other claimants of whom we have not yet heard. But most mechanical inventions are of a very composite character, and are led up to by the labour and the study of a long succession of workers. Thus Savary and Newcomen led up to what? Cugnot, Murdoch, and Trevithick to the Stevensons. Maudsley to Clement, Roberts, Naismith, Whitworth, and many more mechanical inventors. There is scarcely a process in the arts but has in like manner engaged mind after mind in bringing it to perfection. There is nothing, says Mr. Hawkshaw, really worth having that man has obtained, that has not been the result of a combined and gradual process of investigation. A gifted individual comes across some old footmark, stumbles on a chain of previous research and inquiry. He meets, for instance, with a machine, the result of much previous labour. He modifies it, pulls it to pieces, constructs and reconstructs it, and by further trial and experiment he arrives at the long-sought-for result. But the making of the invention is not the sole difficulty. It is one thing to invent, said Sir Mark Brunel, and another thing to make the invention work. Thus, when Watt, after long labour and study, had brought his invention to completion, he encountered an obstacle which had stood in the way of other inventors, and for a time prevented the introduction of their improvements, if not led to their being laid aside and abandoned. This was the circumstance that the machine projected was so much in advance of the mechanical capability of the age, that it was with the greatest difficulty it could be executed. When labouring upon his invention at Glasgow, Watt was baffled and thrown into despair by the clumsiness and incompetency of his workmen. Writing to Dr. Roebuck on one occasion, he said, 
You ask what is the principal hindrance in erecting engines? It is always the smith work. His first cylinder was made by a whitesmith of hammered iron soldered together. But having used quicksilver to keep the cylinder airtight, it dropped through the inequalities into the interior, and played the devil with the solder. Yet, inefficient though the whitesmith was, what could ill spare him? And we find him writing to Dr. Roebuck almost in despair, saying, My old white iron man is dead, feeling his loss to be almost irreparable. His next cylinder was cast and bored at Caron, but it was so untrue that it proved next to useless. The piston could not be kept steam-tight, notwithstanding the various expedients which were adopted of stuffing it with paper, cork, putty, pasteboard, and old hat. Even after Watt had removed to Birmingham, and he had the assistance of Bolton's best workmen, Smeaton expressed the opinion, when he saw the engine at work, that notwithstanding the excellence of the invention, it could never be brought into general use because of the difficulty of getting its various parts manufactured with sufficient precision. For a long time we find Watt, in his letters, complained to his partner of the failure of his engines through villainous bad workmanship. Sometimes the cylinders, when cast, were found to be more than an eighth of an inch wider at one end than the other, and under such circumstances it was impossible the engine could act with precision. Yet better work could not be had. First-rate workmen in machinery did not as yet exist. They were only in process of education. Nearly everything had to be done by hand. The tools used were of a very imperfect kind. A few ill-constructed lathes, with some drills and boring machines of a rude sort, consisted the principal furniture of the workshop. Years after, when Brunel invented his block machines, considerable time elapsed before he could find competent mechanics to construct them, and even after they had been constructed, he had equal difficulty in finding competent hands to work them. What endeavoured to remedy the defect by keeping certain sets of workmen to special classes of work, allowing them to do nothing else? Fathers were induced to bring up their sons at the same bench with themselves, and initiate them into the dexterity which they had acquired by experience. And at Soho it was not unusual for the same precise line of work to be followed by members of the same family for three generations. In this way, as great a degree of accuracy of a mechanical kind was arrived at as practicable under the circumstances. But notwithstanding all this care, accuracy of fitting could not be secured so long as the manufacture of steam engines was conducted mainly by hand. There was usually a considerable waste of steam, which the expedience of chewed paper and greased hat packed outside the piston was insufficient to remedy, and it was not until the invention of automatic machine tools by the mechanical engineers about to be mentioned that the manufacture of the steam engine became a matter of comparative ease and certainty. Watt was compelled to rest satisfied with imperfect results arising from imperfect workmanship. Thus, writing to Dr. Small, respecting a cylinder eighteen inches in diameter, he said, At the worst place the long diameter exceeded the short by only three-eighths of an inch. How different from the state of things at this day, when a cylinder five feet wide will be rejected as a piece of imperfect workmanship if it be found to vary in any part more than the eightieth part of an inch in diameter. 
Not fifty years since it was a matter of the utmost difficulty to set an engine to work, sometimes of equal difficulty to keep it going. Though fitted by competent workmen, it often would not go at all. Then the foreman of the factory at which it was made was sent for, and he would almost live beside the engine for a month or more, and after easing her here and screwing her up there, putting in a new part and altering an old one, packing the piston and tightening the valves, the machine would, at length, be got to work. Now the case is altogether different. The perfection of modern machine tools is such that the utmost possible precision is secured, and the mechanical engineer can calculate on a degree of exactitude that does not admit of a deviation beyond the thousandth part of an inch. When the powerful oscillating engines of the warrior were put on board that ship, the parts, consisting of some five thousand separate pieces, were brought from different workshops of the Messrs. Penn and Sons, where they had been made by workmen who knew not the places where they were to occupy, and fitted together with such precision that, so soon as the steam was raised and let into the cylinders, the immense machine began as if to breathe and move like a living creature, stretching its huge arms like a newborn giant, and then, after practising its strength a little, and proving its soundness in body and limb, it started off with the power of above a thousand horses to try its strength in breasting the billows of the North Sea. Such are among the triumphs of modern mechanical engineering, due in a great measure to the perfection of the tools by means of which all works in metal are now fashioned. These tools are themselves among the most striking results of the mechanical invention of the day. They are automata of the most perfect kind rendering the engine and machine-maker in a great measure independent of inferior workmen. For the machine-tools have no unsteady hand, are not careless nor clumsy, do not work by rule of thumb, and cannot make mistakes. They will repeat their operations a thousand times without tiring or varying one hair's breadth in their action, and will turn out, without complaining, any quantity of work, all of like accuracy and finish exercising as they do so remarkable an influence on the development of modern industry, we now propose, so far as the materials at our disposal will admit, to give an account of their principal inventors, beginning with the school of Brahma. End of chapter 10